Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than the pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing, a great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, and now your host, Shane Ryan. Hello, everybody. This is episode number 22. And as promised, our guest today is Joe Poznanski. So for those of you who are into sports, which probably everybody who's listening to this podcast, Joe doesn't need much of an introduction. You've probably been reading him for years, uh, but I'll give his quick bio here. He is somebody who worked in newspapers for a really long time. Most notably, I would say at the Kansas City Star, where he was a columnist. And, you know, that paper, interestingly, uh, had a ton of talent there at the time. People like... Wright Thompson, Jeff Passan, Jason Whitlock, a lot of big names that went on to national jobs. Um, and so that was kind of a, a cool little unpredictable place where they all gathered for a little while. And we talk about that. Uh, and then he moved on from there. He, um, he worked at Sports Illustrated, Sports on Earth. Um, he worked for MLB for a little while. And now he works for The Athletic. And in the meantime, he's written a bunch of books. Um, most famously, he wrote a book about Joe Paterno um, right when the Penn State scandal was breaking. He's written books about Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson and about baseball, and we get into all of that. So, yeah, that's Joe Poznanski. And the other thing I should explain about him is that he, um, he lives in North Carolina like me, and I discovered a couple years ago that he plays USTA tennis like I do. And so that's, you know, I don't know if he's quite as obsessed as I am, but um, I do sort of force him to talk about it that in the beginning. And, uh, you know, <laughs> now you have the background on why that's happening. And the other quick thing to mention is that Joe does a great podcast with Michael Schur, uh, who is the creator of Parks and Rec in the office and a huge figure in American comedy. So so he is a jack of all trades, uh, extremely talented and very, very lucky for me to get him on the show. So I hope you enjoy that, and uh, you know a quick word about what this is. Apocalypse Sports Radio is part of the Apocalypse Sports Network. Um, if you like this content, you may like some of the stuff at apocalypsesports.net, so you can check that out. Uh, it is Patreon run. Most of the content is free now, but uh, you know if you want to support, you can do so at patreon.com slash apocalypse sports. All right, let's get right to it. Up next, Joe Poznanski. Segment break. Joe, thanks very much, and welcome to you. Ah, it's great. Great to be here. So you probably thought I was kidding when I DM'd you, but I really do want to spend at least an hour or two talking about North Carolina USTA tennis. I hope that's okay with you. <laughs> it is. It is absolutely okay with me to talk a little uh, a little USTA tennis. So I, I was actually doing research, and it, it broke my heart because I could have sworn it. Maybe it's completely my imagination, but I could have sworn you wrote something about about playing USTA tennis and I could not find it anywhere. Is that real or, am, or is that completely in my head? 
It is, uh, it is real. Uh, I don't, I never know where I wrote things anymore. <laughs> right, I mean, it's, right. it's, you know, that's, it's the one thing that we used to all have, right? We used to all just go, yeah, if you want to see my stuff, it's, it's in the Kansas city star or, or it's in sports illustrated. And now of course it's like, well, it could be pretty much anywhere. Um, but yes, uh, I, I am a, uh, I play a lot of tennis. Uh, it's been a little while, since I've been in a USTA league, right. uh, I still am a USTA member, but uh, uh, it's been a couple of years since I've been in a league. So now I, I play more, uh, more, you know, just with friends and, and all that, but, but I play as much as ever and uh, love it. Love absolutely. It's the, it's the one thing that has sort of kept me somewhat sane during this pandemic is, is at least being able to go out and it's the one social distancing sport you can feel, you know, pretty good about. So it's, uh, it's the one thing that I've been able to do during this crazy time. So, yeah, I, I unfortunately tore my ACL a year ago, so it's been a while Oof. for me too. But before I did that, I was, there was a period of like two years where I got obsessed. Like 3-5 tennis to me was bigger than any any sport that had ever existed. <laughs> it was the most important <laughs> thing in my life. And I had a friend who, you know, we kind of facilitated each other's obsessions. But I always said that if I ever talk to you, I'm going to tell you this story because, you know, we would look on USTA for results and, uh, you know, we went to state championships. And so we would see the teams coming in from Charlotte and I didn't realize you played until one of these obsessive rabbit hole research things. It was like, oh, Joe Poznanski. Oh, my God. It's got to be him. There can't be that many Joe Poznanskis out there. And um, what is the country club? Is it Blakely or, or Blakeney or something like Blakeney, that? Blakeney. Yeah, Blakeney is the team that we would play all the time. Yeah, yeah. And so they they were the team that we were playing in the state championships. And so I made sure to stop and ask them. I was like, you got to tell me all about Joe Poznanski. What is he like? <laughs> and so you can say if they're right or wrong. But here's the scouting report on you. They said he, this is 3-5 tennis. They said he has the fastest serve I've ever seen in 3-5 tennis. And if he misses it on the first serve, he will attempt the exact same serve <laughs> on the second. I I have been known to double fault uh, a little bit in in my... Now, I, I will say it has been... It's been a couple of years uh, since since I played USDA, as I mentioned, and so my game is is somewhat shifted a little bit. Okay, um, but at that time it was all serve and forehand. That's literally all I had. Uh, I did anything I could possibly do to run around my backhand, uh, and <laughs> and uh, and I did. I I actually really do. People don't believe me, and they shouldn't because I'm I am thoroughly unathletic in in so many ways. Uh, but I. I still can, but at that time, you know, even a couple of years ago, I had a, a legitimately huge serve. Like yeah, that is like, yeah. that's legit. Like that is, that is true. It's been, it's, it's been clocked, uh, you know, over a hundred miles an hour. I mean, it is a legitimate wow. big serve, uh, certainly for three, five tennis. Uh, but it is, it is, you know, when you make one out of 10, it doesn't really matter how hard your serve is. Right. So, um, <laughs> and I never, and I, and I tried to develop a second serve, what I would not do with my second serve. And I'm sure you can appreciate this. I wouldn't just like punch it over. The net. It over. Like, right. I, right. Can't do it. Can't do that. So I tried to do some version where I added spin and tried to, mm -hmm. to create something and, you know, and I'm better at it now. Like I don't double fault nearly as much as I do now. And I have a much better backhand than I do now, but, uh, than I did then. Uh, but you know, I don't 
my service isn't as good. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you, you get older, you get better in certain ways and you get worse in other ways. And, and I, I just think you, you're, you're always the same at the end of the day. It's like, you have the same number. It's like you have a, it's like you have a number of chips and so you just get to move the chips to different parts of your <laughs> yeah, game. But yeah. You, it's like, it's no, like when you create a video game character, you can like right, you take some right. from speed, but you're going to lose some in power or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad to have that story confirmed. It's been, that was like four years ago when this happened. So that I've been waiting to talk to you about that show for four years. <laughs> Did you guys win? Did you guys beat those guys? I like those guys at Blakeney. They were good guys. Yeah, they're good. You know, we didn't beat them uh, that year, but we beat them a different year. I played a guy who was the opposite of what you describe, a complete pusher where we warmed up and I was like, I'm going to absolutely kill this guy. And of course, what happened is he killed me. But the yeah. style was like the most infuriating thing you can imagine. And, and he was the <laughs> nicest possible man. Um, but I was like, yeah, I wonder if he played Joe. That would be quite a matchup. That that hyper aggression versus like, I, yeah, could, I, I, could, play, I, I could play a point for 35 minutes. I think I know the guy that you could play. And, and the thing that was so that you never saw when you warmed up with him is he ran down everything. Oh yeah. Jack everything. Rabbit. Complete jackrabbit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just could absolutely move. <laughs> and then if, if it is the same guy, I believe Scott he G. had Scott, an accident. It was Scott a, G. If it, that helps at all. Scott G. I, I'm not sure if it's the same guy. There was a guy okay. on Blakely who was a true jackrabbit and could go anywhere. And did, and then he, he like broke both of his ankles or something in one move that he made on the tennis court oh, like wow. there's this he was walking around with two different uh casts and like what happened he's like yeah just one one move i'm like i don't know how in tennis you could break both ankles at the same time but <laughs> yeah that's but remarkable this guy could though yeah the, the amount this guy ran it didn't surprise me that his ankles probably just went on strike at a certain point <laughs> Uh, okay, well, we'll move on. We don't have to talk about tennis the entire time, but I do appreciate that. Uh, but no, so yeah, we're talking about, you know, you live in Charlotte and I don't think I realized that you actually moved to Charlotte. You were still a kid. You like, you were in high school. Uh, I had always known that you grew up in Ohio, but I, you know, I can thank Wikipedia for this, that, uh, so you're, I guess your folks must've moved, uh, when you were in high school to North yeah. Carolina. That's right. My dad, my dad got a job at a factory in uh, just outside of Charlotte uh, in a little town called Monroe. And uh, so we moved when I was in high school uh, from from Cleveland to Charlotte, which was, you know, strange, very strange. Mm -hmm. That was a real culture shock, particularly then. Charlotte is is much different now than it was when I moved, you know, here, whatever it was, 40 years ago or something. Um you know, but it was, it was a real culture shock, but then, you, you know, we came here and then I went to high school here and I went to college here and uh, then I left and then I was gone for 25 years. I mean, we, you know, lived yeah, in obviously yeah. in Augusta and Cincinnati and Kansas city and met my wife in Kansas city. We had our kids in Kansas city and then we came back here. And the weirdest thing is that when we came back to Charlotte, um, it was like moving to a different town. Other than my parents still living here, mm -hmm. uh, which is why we came back. Um, it was like a different town. It was, it, I, I recognized nothing from, from when I went to high school here. I know none of the high school friends that I had. I, I never see them. So, really? so it yeah. really, it's weird how it just like, we, even though we moved to, you know, to Charlotte and I kind of, you know, I, I didn't grow up here, but I, but I went to high school here. Uh, I don't feel that connection to Charlotte because the town is so much bigger and different uh, than it was when I was growing up here. Now, what changed? Was it, was it primarily a population thing or w did the banks come in in the interval? What, what made it different? What was it like when you were a kid there? Well, the banking thing was beginning uh, at the, at that time. It was, 
uh, I think it was UNCB uh, was was what became uh, became Bank of America, mm-hmm. um, and and so there was there was some beginning of banking, but there was no sports here, none. I mean, yeah, the yeah. the the big sports in Charlotte when I when I moved here in high school, of course, was NASCAR was was the biggest thing. Wrestling was the second biggest thing. No kidding. Uh, huh. and we, oh yeah, wrestling was the biggest. In Charlotte, because because at that time it was Crockett Promotions, it was all it was all based in Charlotte. So you'd be going around town, and you would see Ric Flair, or you would see Ricky Steamboat, or you okay, would see yeah. uh, like all of these wrestlers uh, hanging around, like at, at at restaurants where you ate and all that. So so they were the big stars in town. But of course, there was no no basketball, no Hornets. There was certainly no football. Um, there was a minor league baseball team, but, but they were, uh, they, they were a struggle, the Charlotte O's and, and, uh, and they had their, their, their stadium burned down. Uh, so they played in a little makeshift park for part of the time when I was, uh, when I was in high school. So anyway, the, the big, the big things were all out of town. I mean, this is a, this, at that time, this was a big ACC basketball. It still is, but at the time that was all that mattered here was ACC basketball. And that was in the time of, of Michael Jordan and, and, and uh, Len bias and those guys. And so that was all that mattered here. And so it was, it was virtually, you know, as a guy who grew up in Cleveland and, and nothing but professional sports and, and couldn't care less about wrestling or NASCAR or any of that stuff. uh, It was a real, I had no idea what was going on. Then you come back here and now, this feels like a very, and you know, part it's the population, the fact there are so many banks here now and all that, but you know, there's, there are pro sports here. I mean, this is, it, it feels, it, it doesn't feel that different from say an Atlanta or, or, a or a, a Dallas or someplace like that. Uh, so, so it's, it does feel very different from when I was growing up. Yeah. And you know, Joe, I re- reread uh, the promise, which is a great essay you wrote. I think you wrote it in 2011 um, it kind of interspliced uh, your love for Bruce Springsteen with the story of working with your dad at that factory you mentioned. I think you're yeah. 18 years old. Um, I had a similar experience where I, I sort of worked a manual labor job when I was summers in high school. And I, it sounds like we reached the same conclusion that it's like, I really don't <laughs> want to do this. <laughs> like, and and uh, you had one line in there that was great, which is like the thing that kept you sane was knowing that this isn't for a lifetime. Um, but you also had that thing of considering that, you know, for your dad, this was a lifetime thing. Um, talk to me a little bit about how did that influence you, uh, if at all, into what you were going to do in the rest of your life? Oh, it was, it was a huge, huge influence on me. It was the summer after, I guess, my freshman year in college. I was very young. I, w- I, was, I was 17 when I went to college. Okay. And, uh, and so it was the summer after my freshman year. I had gone to study accounting, which was a disastrous choice for <laughs> me. And, and, uh, and I, you know, came out, I would, you know, that summer came along and I truly was lost. I, I did not have any idea what I could do, what I wanted to do. It, it was all a, a blur of, of, of nothingness. And, uh, all I really, my only real goal was to make enough money to get a car. And so I, I went to work, uh, at the Elisa, uh, factory, that was what it was called. Elisa, uh, it was a knitting factory. Uh, it no longer exists, but it was, it was hellish, uh, for, yeah, yeah. for three months. And of course that was where my dad worked and, and my dad had a hellish job there, you know, fixing machines. And, and, uh, that was, that was his, that was his, you know, job. And, and so, so it was super, uh, it was super, 
you know, influential on me for a couple of reasons. One was I, I realized that what a what a scary life that was uh, for for me to because I was. I wasn't good at, at manual labor. I wasn't yeah, good at it. Yeah. And yet, you know, I, and I was getting paid nothing, basically nothing. And I really was scared. I mean, this was, you know, all these people around that I was working with. I mean, this was their life. It wasn't like that this was a summer job for them. This was their life. So when you're around that, you can start visualizing, well, what if, what if this is my life? And, and you know, so many people that's, that's, their life and it's very very difficult and trying and of course that's the way it was for my father and and I, you know I still don't know that's the second thing that that was so influential for me as is that it was the life of my father and and he would wake up every day and 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 put on his you know his his uh, work clothes and 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 work in this very very hot uh, rough place to work and he never really let it it get to him you know i mean I, I don't know what he felt in private moments but as his son you know as part of his family we never saw it back up on him and i just i just realized i didn't have the strength for that i didn't know yeah, I, yeah. I still don't know where that strength came came from so so it definitely was like well look if you don't want this to be your life if you want something different you're going to have to go out there and get it and and it's it's something that you know but until you feel it like that, uh, mm. I, I think I think that had a huge, huge, uh, you know, it, it, it changed my life, really. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is not something I would tell my daughter immediately, but I think there is <laughs> truth in the idea that anxiety is a wonderful motivator and may, may, might be the best motivator <laughs> I've found in yeah. my life. You know, it's one of those like you don't want that to be the truth, but I think it is the truth in some ways. Well, I, and I think we all come to that point. I mean, whether we whether we want to or not, yeah. where you are out of the out of the shell of you know protected you know worlds that 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 you grow up in to some degree, and you realize like, well, you know what? Whatever the future is going to be, you're the one that's going to write it. You know, it's it's not going to be uh, something that that uh, that is handed to you. It's not going to be something that you you know you've got to find it for yourself. And it's something you know when you it's not like anybody goes to college and doesn't realize like okay i've got to i've got to create a future for myself right i mean i yeah. think everybody understands it on like a mental level but it's when it's when you start feeling it physically and emotionally uh when you start seeing like hey i i i got to go i got to do something or else or else this is what it's going to be and and look that's not there are many, many, many people that's, that's where their life ends up being. And, and hopefully they can find uh, joy and, and, and uh, inspiration and, and discovery and all sorts of other parts of their life. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be for a profession, but for me, I really wanted to do something in my life that, that I enjoyed and that, that sort of felt, I don't know, a little bit bigger. And, and so, yeah, you know, being there in that, in that factory, just every day, 105 degrees in there felt like every day, just moving boxes and moving boxes and, and unloading trucks. And, 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 you know, to the point where at the end of the day, you would be just, you'd be just this shell of a person, you, right. you know, yeah. there'd be, that's, that's a pretty good motivator to go ahead and say, okay, 
is 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 this it or uh or do you want to try something else and if you do what are you going to do so it was definitely motivating for me yeah, you know, my grandfather uh, wanted to be a farmer and he had a family farm, but classic American story, it got sold out from under him and he raised eight kids while being a prison guard. And wow. somehow he's still alive and a very happy person. And I like what you said about the strength of your father, because that's what it is, isn't it? It's like, I couldn't do that. I would go nuts and, you know, God knows what would happen. But there is a certain strength in being able to do that job. But I guess if your brain works a little differently, the, you know, it's kind of like a warning signal, like you better figure something out quickly. Well, and, and, you know, certainly in my father's case, and, and it sounds like in your grandfather's case as well, that's not what he wanted to do. That's just sort of where it was. You know, my father, I'm a first generation American. My father came here uh, and, and, you know, he, he found work to support his family. I mean, that's, that's how his life went. And, and, you know, I was in a different situation, you know, that, that he put me in. I mean, that's the other thing is you feel like, your, your family, your parents, um, you know, they suffer. So you don't, right. I mean, that's, that's what, what I sort of feel like try to do for my daughters. And I know that's what my parents did for me. My parents didn't want me to work in a factory. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. that they wanted me to, well, they wanted me to become a, an accountant, right. I mean, they wanted me to become a, <laughs> yeah. a, a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant. That's what they wanted. I'm, I'm not super sure they're thrilled about a sports writer, but they wanted something <laughs> more. They wanted me to follow a different path and a bigger path if I could. And, uh, you know, but, but you know that, but again, uh, it's, it's that 28th barrel that you've taken off the, off the truck and then looking on that truck and seeing <laughs> you have another 50 to do. That's a moment when you go, okay, I, can I do something else? Is there a way I can do something else? Yeah. And so you talked about you counting uh, almost got its grips into you, but it sounds like it, you weren't long for that. When did the idea that you could become a writer, well, you know, that this could be a job that you did, when did that become real for you? It's really strange, you know, because I, especially when I speak to to colleges, you know, at colleges or high schools and and see all of these these young people who like know that they want to write. And I think what a gift that is, you know, they yeah. want to be a writer, they want to be a journalist of some kind, they want to be on television, they want to be on radio, whatever it is, they know they want to tell stories, they know they want to uh, break news, they know they want to, you know, un unveil uh, corruption, whatever it is, they know it. I didn't know any of that. I really didn't. And I never was told one time when I was a kid that I had any talent for writing. So I never knew that or thought that or mm. believed that. And it was really when I was in college that, uh, that I, you know, after failing out of accounting and realizing I needed to try to do something else that I wrote a bunch of letters to, to different people in different, uh, walks of life with different jobs just to say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm lost here and I I'd love to hear more about what you do. And one of the letters I wrote was to the sports editor uh, of the, of the Charlotte observer, uh, a guy by the name of Frank Barrows, who is uh, no longer with us. And Frank uh, wrote back to me and, and said, you know, we're, we're always looking for people willing to go to high school games mm -hmm. for whatever, 20 bucks and, and giving us like a little report from those games. And if you're interested, you know, we, 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 we can talk about you doing something like that. And I, the first time I did it, I can remember it. Uh, I went, uh, I went with a guy named T Orlando Ledbetter who's still a sports writer in Orlando and uh, or in Florida. And, uh, and uh, uh, T took me out, showed me how to do it. And I, 
was instantly in love with this idea. So for me, my biggest fear, and I mean, it was a fear for a very long time uh, as, as I was going, was that I, I wasn't good enough to do this because now I knew what I wanted to yeah. do. It was like the first time in my life I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a sports writer, but I did not think I wrote well enough. I didn't think I had what it took. I, and none of those, all of those things just scared me to death. And to the point where, where honestly, I mean, I think people at the paper were kind of amused by it. Uh, by Because <laughs> I would say to them all the time, like, what can I do? What can I do? How can I get better? How can I get better? And, and you know, I think their, their feeling was, you know, you know, a big part of being a sports writer is just like, doing it like you know it's like it's 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 it's, right. not, it's not a rarefied you know, it's, art yeah it's not a rarefied art exactly just kind of go out and give us the correct score and we'll <laughs> you know you'll probably yeah. have a job and and but i didn't believe that at all and so i it was the first time that i truly dedicated myself to anything and and but i did dedicate myself i mean in a in a in a sort of obsessive way looking back on it mm -hmm. uh you know to the point where i i got a job at the observer the charlotte observer as a uh, as an agate clerk where i would take the scores uh, people would call in scores. I would take them over the phone. Uh, I would put together the little uh, statistical packages you would see in the paper and things like that. Right. And there was some downtime. And whenever I would have downtime, I would write a column, a sports column, like a pretend, not for anybody else. I didn't want or expect anybody else to read it. I was doing it purely for practice. And one day the sports editor of the paper, um, you know, I would just leave them in my little basket you know wherever yeah, whatever yeah. the computer basket was and one day the sports editor called me into his office and he said have you been writing like columns <laughs> well, and i thought i was in so much trouble i thought you know like he's like you're not working or you shouldn't you be doing your real job but he was he had never seen anything like that he had never seen anybody just writing pretend columns uh, to get better at it. So, uh, so it ended up being, you know, he, he, he took me under his wing and in, in a lot of ways at that point. And, and it ended up leading to me actually becoming a sports columnist when I was very young. So, so it was, it was great, but, but I, that's when it happened. So there was never yeah, a moment yeah. where I thought I was good enough, uh, to do it, which is probably why it worked, you know? Yeah. I was going to ask, do you think that's a prerequisite in some ways? Cause you hear that story a lot and, you know, granted, in our profession, there are a lot of cocky seeming people uh, <laughs> at times. It seems like they broadcast confidence. Uh, I don't know if that's a front for insecurity, but, you know, a lot of the writers I admire, including you, uh, you hear the same thing from them that uh, there was always, you know, insecurity, doubt. But it was the kind that sort of, you know, combined with the love of what they were doing led to the hard work that, you know, leads to success. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've actually I have nothing but but respect and admiration for my friends in the business who, who have that kind of confidence. I, I <laughs> yeah, cause yeah. I still don't, I still don't. I, I never, you know, I'll see some people, friends of mine who will write a story, you know, this is mostly when they were on deadline and then they would actually come to you and read you the lead. Like, Oh man, Hey, look, this is what I wrote. <laughs> I would never do that in a million years. And not because of some sort of false modesty. I just don't, I just don't think anything I write is that good when I write it. You know I mean? Like maybe if I read it a little bit later, I'll think like, Oh, okay. You know what? That was, that ended up being pretty good, but I never feel good about anything uh, that I write as I write it. And, and so I think that's been really good for me and probably for, for the people you're talking about the friends. I mean, you want, 
I, I don't think you ever want to be satisfied. I mean, I, I think that's an obvious thing, but, but I do, I do feel like there's like a part of me that goes, gosh, what that, what, what must that feel like to write something where you feel so good about it? You're like, I'm going to go read it to everybody in the room. I think it's great. It I, is. You know, I've had that same experience and the same thought of like, boy, how do they do it? Cause that to me seems excruciating. <laughs> it's a little bit like at bars. If somebody can just like approach a woman and, and just be full of confidence, like without sweating and like fleeing, you know, which would be my reaction. I, I think there's a similar thing there. A similar beat, yeah. but yeah, it's like, I don't want, it's very difficult for me to know that other people are reading my work once it's published, <laughs> much less perform it for them uh, in person. That would be very tough. Um, so you, you know, you obviously went on to this, to this long career as a columnist and it's, um, it's kind of funny to me now, you know, I was aware of you when you were at the Kansas city star and you were a really good columnist, of course. Um, but to think of you as a columnist now, when, you know, you write long blogs, you do long podcasts, to me, it seems like you have a thing where you kind of bridge the newspaper world and the internet world. But what was it like before you had these forums where you could really kind of, you know, let loose and, you know, you were, you were circumscribed, I guess, by the, the column space of a newspaper. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I did the, 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 the Kansas city star, which was, you know, still is but but when i worked there it was just an amazing amazing place to work and i worked for you know a couple of the you know three of the greatest editors uh, a person could ever work for they did give me space i mean that was one okay. thing they did they, it was one of those in fact i'm sure uh there were plenty of copy editors who were pretty bitter about it because i would i would send in you know these these pieces that were you know every if you're if you're a copy editor you're a design editor at a newspaper you want the column to be the exact length that fits your space. And, and of course I never, I wouldn't do that because they just said, we'll just write whatever you want to write. And then they would figure out how to make it work in the paper. So I'm sure I drove a lot of uh, really, really good copy editors and, and design people crazy. But, <laughs> but honestly, I did not know this part of me that, that, you know, wants to write and write and write, like when you're, when you're from a newspaper, you just, you just sort of do what you're supposed to do from a newspaper. And then I started blogging really kind of out of nowhere. And I did it. The, I first started, uh, I guess in 2006 or 2007, cause I, I wanted to, to do something to promote my first book. Uh, so I, right, I right. wrote a blog to go with that first book. And then I don't, I don't know exactly how it happened, but I started realizing like, wow, you, on the internet, you can write as long as you want. <laughs> and, <laughs> There's absolutely and, no limits. Yeah. There are no limits. And, and people will be forgiving if you misspell stuff. And I mean, it's like, it, it was, it was such a revelation to me. And then at that point uh, I, I got out of control. I mean, it probably needed <laughs> uh, an editor to tell me to settle down, but, um, but I honestly didn't know that. I mean, you know, I think I was a pretty, typical uh newspaper columnist in 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 so many ways i mean i would write x number of times a week and 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 you know this many of the same topics and of course writing on deadline like everybody else so so everything was self felt you know pretty normal then and then once i started blogging uh you know not long after i started the blog sports illustrated came to me and they wanted me to do that for them. And then they wanted to hire me full time. And then I was for a time I was doing that and the paper. So at that point I just started doing a lot of different things. I was writing books. I was writing mm -hmm. magazine pieces. I was writing blogs and I was writing newspaper columns. Um, and I found that I liked doing all of those things. So I think that's, 
probably where that comes from. If, if, if I'm bridging anything, it's, it's just finding, you know, that no matter which form of writing I was doing, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, but it's all it's really perfect in a way, right? Because you look at the way things have transformed. If you were somebody who is just like, well, look, I've been trained to write a newspaper column. These are the number of words I know how to use. Right. And and like I can't, I'm not I don't feel like writing two thousand words about satchel page or whatever it would be. It, it would have limited you in some way, right? As things changed and and blogging became the new paradigm. Um so it's the fact that you had that, I guess, that skill set, uh, even though it was latent or dormant or whatever, I mean, that's really a good thing for your career. Well, it's definitely been a good thing for my career. I mean, there's, I don't know what it would have been like if I was a pure columnist and, and that's, that was it. Cause I mean, there really isn't too much space for the, you know, for the 750 word, uh, column, you know, right on deadline, like, like that, like that, th- nobody really wants that now, yeah, exactly. you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, right. it's, everybody wants perspective and depth and, and, uh, and statistical based things and, and all of these other things that, that you see everywhere. Um, you know, I, when I look at the athletic, you know, now that I'm writing there, I mean, it's, you won't see uh, a game story the way that, that one used to be, you won't see a column the way that one used to be. It's just, it's just different. I mean, the, the, the expectation is different. The writing is different. And, so yeah, I was very lucky that I that I sort of I didn't adapt so much as as it, it turned out that's what I wanted to do all along, and and so I think that that was lucky, and and certainly has been a huge huge boost, and and uh, you know look I'm still standing right. I mean that's yeah, yeah, sort that's of right. that's right. That's all we're that's all any of us could hope for. So one more Kansas City question. It's interesting uh, that you and Jason Whitlock were both there at the same time. Uh, very different writers, obviously, but both bound for a kind of national audience. And when you think of that, we're like, these two, like, you know, soon to be really well-known sports writers, you know, if you like quiz, where would they be? You'd go, oh, they probably came from New York or LA or somewhere or like Chicago or something like that. And here you guys were both in Kansas City. Um, <laughs> this question is very highfalutin, but was there any sort of shared sense of destiny at the time when you were in Kansas City? Like, did you guys get a sense that that these like huge things were coming? Well, the answer is yes. And, and, you know, look, I can't speak too well for Jason. I mean, obviously Jason and I were, were columnists together for a very long time. And, and, uh, and I think it was, it was because our styles were so different. I think it was very good, but you know, the Kansas city thing is extraordinary. And, yeah, and, yeah. you know, the deeper you go into it, I mean, Wright Thompson wrote for the Kansas city star when I was there right. and Jeff Passan wrote for the Kansas city star when I was there and Michelle Vopel wrote for the Dude, Kansas city star when I was there. Incredible. And yeah, I mean, and on and on and on. I mean, there's virtually everywhere you look in sports journalism today, you see somebody who I worked with at the Kansas city star yeah. and, and that's, it's, it's, to, to have been doing the star turn, you know, as, as we sort of saw the columnist job, me and Jason, you know, and, and then be, you know, surrounded by younger people like Wright Thompson. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it really, really was crazy. And it, it all goes really back to, to uh, an editor named Mike Fannin, who, who, you know, just discovered all of this extraordinary talent and brought people in and, 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 you know, built them up and, and tore them down as they will. Everybody's got a great Mike Fannin story about <laughs> the, getting torn down by Mike, but uh, you know, e- even to this day, the Kansas city star still, I mean, you look at their columnists now with Vahe Gregorian and Sam Mellinger, Sam was a guy that, 
that I worked with, you know, since he was, a, you know, really a kid, I mean, just out of college and they're great. And, and I, I do think there was something magical there and we did have a shared destiny. We felt like in the middle of Kansas city, Missouri, at a time when, you know, really sort of a heyday of newspapers. I mean, before, before the fall, we felt like we were putting out the best sports section in the country. And, and, you know, that was a point of pride for us to go up against the New York times and the Boston globe and the Washington post and the LA times and, and the Dallas morning news and Chicago tribune and on and on and on. We, we looked at those guys and we thought well, we're doing our, the stuff we're doing is as good as their them or it's better than them. And, and, so there was a shared destiny. We felt like, of course, we were writing for the Kansas City market, but we did feel like we were we were a national paper. And and uh, you know, and time has proven that uh, to be true that we really were kind of a national paper. Yeah, and those things are interesting when you hear about them historically. And in journalism, you almost wonder if that time has passed a little. Like maybe you could have said. I don't know, a website like Grantland, or maybe you can say it about The Athletic, but it's a little bit different with a website, isn't it? To have a little oasis like that in Kansas City feels like, in the current era of newspapers, something that's almost impossible at this point. It's really hard. I mean, I, I don't want to say impossible. I hope it's not impossible. I hope that newspapers have a, another chapter in them. Yeah. But but it's hard. I mean, th there was something going on in Kansas City that – you know, I know they're trying to reproduce this at the athletic and, and to some degree they are, but you know, Wright would write a great story and it, everybody in the place would be like, all right, I got to write something as good as what Wright did yeah. or better than what Wright did. Uh, and then Jeff would write something. Uh, Jason would write something. Michelle would write something, uh, you know, on and on. I mean, I, I, I can't list off all of the people who have, who have made impacts all over the country, because there were so many of them and every person that did that every time it happened um, it was an inspiration for other people to, to, to work even harder and try even more. And, and you, you felt it. If you didn't feel like you were carrying your weight, if you didn't feel like you were doing uh, some of this high end, you know, really top level stuff, mm -hmm. um, you felt it. You felt like, Hey, I'm, I, I've got to pick it up. I've got to be a part of this. Uh, group and I was, you know, I mean, for me it was, it was, it was special, you know, to to be in the middle of all of that, and and so I don't know if that's repeatable. I, like I say, I mean, I do think that places like Grantland, like smaller internet uh, things, can right, right. can get some of that. I mean, the athletics pretty big now. I mean, there's hundreds yeah, and hundreds of writers, it's, it's so it's tougher to do that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so around that time too, you started writing books and. I, I could ask you a million questions about all your great books, but I'll, I'll settle for two. Um, the one, of course, that probably is the most notorious is your Paterno book. And, uh, you know, I had John Feinstein on earlier as a guest, and he talked about how he, um, you know, he wrote a March Madness book for this year, and the timing was terrible because, you know, March Madness got canceled. And uh, I, there's a few stories like that going around, which you could probably relate to, but on a much larger scale, <laughs> uh, you know, this paternal book came out and it was, it, it was incredibly successful and everything, but the timing was almost unbelievable of the way it went on where you're working on this paternal book without knowing everything that's going to happen. And there was a lot of controversy and I know there were like fights and stuff afterward. And so, you know, this has been what, eight years since that came out. So I guess the question I would like to ask is from a distance, how do you view that whole episode now? It's a good question. Um, I don't know that I view it a lot different than I did then. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in some ways, 
you know, first, first thing I'd say is I, I'm extraordinarily proud of that book. Um, I, it's, I'm proud of all of them. I mean, anytime you write a book, it's an accomplishment, Yeah. but you know, that book pushed me in, in, in ways that no book ever will again, I hope. Um, because, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, obviously I was there writing a book about, about Joe Paterno's incredible football career as, as a coach. And, and I was living in state college and, you know, I was aware, uh, you know, that there was something going on, uh, in, in, you know, with Jerry Sandusky as an, an ex coach, uh, but I, but I didn't know the connections to Paterno, and I certainly didn't know how that story was going to break, and and how uh, controversial it was going to become, and and then of course how Paterno was going to get blamed for so many things, and 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 all of that. And I'm in the middle of all of that uh, going on, and I'm the one person who the family feels they can trust. So they're telling me, you know, I'm hearing all sorts of stuff from them. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, of course, I've got a huge, huge media throng wanting to know what I'm going to write, when I'm going to write, how I'm going to write. Uh, they're, they're taking guesses. You know, it was, it's, it's so funny as a writer uh, of books, as you all know, uh, the one thing that you want is to be, you know, written about in the New York times. It's like sort of the, it's the big thing. Like my, my first two books, I, the New York times didn't write about my Buck O'Neill book or, or my book about the machine, the, the big red machine. Right. So, you know, you want to get rid well, I got written about three times in the New York <laughs> times before the book ever came out. There was no chance of low publicity for that book. Right. And, and L three of all three of them were vicious, you know, and I really, right, right. I really took a lot of hits in, in those books and, and, and I'm still, you know, people still will take shots at me uh, for writing that book. And, and, but, but here's the thing, and this is absolutely as honest I can be about it. I know what I wrote in that book. Uh, and I know how true it is. And I know how time has only strengthened uh, the truth of that book. And, and, you know, I know people that it's, it's so emotional. I've never, ever blamed anybody for, uh, for taking a side and, yeah, and yeah. deciding that, that, you know, my book was too kind to him or it was, it was. Well, uh, and, and an Jason apology. Whitlock, Jason Whitlock was one of them, right? There was sort of a little, uh, I don't know if it was a mini tiff or a feud or whatever. After that, he was, it wasn't a feud because it was one-sided, but yes, it was, uh, <laughs> he, he did. He took tremendous shots of the book. A lot of people did. A lot of people took yeah. real shots of the book. They thought it was an apology for him and it wasn't. And, and it's okay. I, I really understand that when you write something that emotional, there was no way I was going to write a book that wasn't going to create a furor, no matter right. which way right. I, which way it was. And, you know, that's okay. As long as I could honestly say to myself that what I wrote in the book was true, that what I wrote in the book was, was as, you know, it was, I was the one person who had real insight into every element of this thing. And, and I feel like that's in that book and not that long ago, I didn't reread the book, but uh, I was doing an interview and I said, well, you know, I better go back and kind of take a look uh, through that book. So I'll have to sort of refamiliarize myself right, with right. that book. And it, it, it holds up. I mean, I, I just, I just think that's a really, really good book. And, and I understand if, that people that there are plenty of people that don't, there are also plenty of people that do though. And, and I, and I do want to say, cause every time I, I end up talking about this, I talk about all of those, all of those people who, who were very 
hard on me and, mm-hmm. and very critical of me, there were many, many people in, in, and they know who they are in, including some very, very prominent people in journalism, in sports, in, in entertainment, um, who loved that book and thanked me for writing that book. And, and that was, that was really meaningful to me. And it still is, it still is because I, I know that's a really good book. And I also know that, um, you know, that, that the best thing you can do in those circumstances is cause I, cause I could remember being in the middle of it and yeah. looking all around and realizing, man, that you have no friends, you know, <laughs> there is, there's, you have your, your wife and your kids and that's it. You know, you're, you're on your own on this thing. And I wasn't, I did have great friends, but you know, you're in the middle of this thing alone and, and being able to stop and say, okay, well, what, what kind of book are you going to write? I mean, what, what is, what is important to you? What, what matters to you? And being able to answer the question as honestly as you can and say the, the most important thing is for me to write an honest and true book Mm -hmm. and then to stand up and do it. I, I just, you know, I feel like I say, I'll, I'll, I'll probably never be prouder of a book than I am of that one. Yeah, that's great. And, um, on a, on a less incendiary note, as a golf guy, I also have to ask you about the secret of golf. Um, one of the things I've been doing this summer, because there's you know so little content, as you know, you kind of have to imagine things and, and be a little gimmicky, but uh, I've been going through every time one of the majors should have been played, I've been going historically <laughs> and ranking the top 15 majors. And sure. I knew, okay, of course I knew that Nicholas and Watson had had a good rivalry, <laughs> to, to say the least. But I didn't realize, I don't think, how good until I was watching the clip of The Duel in the Sun and watching the clips from when they went at it in Pebble Beach. Uh, and so your book, The Secret of Golf, which I did read at the time, but I don't know, maybe it slipped from my head or something. Um, you got to go in depth on this. And, you know, the one thing that's always tantalizing in golf is that even when you have rivalries like Palmer Nicholas or Woods Mickelson or whatever, very rarely will there be a major where they're going at it in the back nine on Sunday. It just doesn't work out that often. But these guys did. And in some, and in some sense, I almost have come to the conclusion over this summer that this might be golf's greatest rivalry ever when you look at what actually happened on the course. Uh, so I guess my question to you, is that a defensible take, what I just told you? And, uh, and you know, the experience of writing that must have been just incredibly cool. It was so fun. It was so fun. You know, after after the Paterno book, I wanted a, a fun book to write. You know, that was that was part of the part of the the joy uh, to try to do something like that, you know, where you just go back and, and, and both of those guys, you know, Tom and Jack were, were amazing to work with, particularly Tom. I mean, it's, it's mostly Tom's book. Um, but they were both amazing to work with and, and so wonderful. And I honestly believe you're right. And I didn't make this, this case. I mean, I make the case in the book in sort of a, in sort of a quiet way, mm-hmm. but you look through history, there is, there is one maybe two, if you consider the very young Jack, really one great tournament between Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. And and their rivalry goes beyond the golf course. It goes into business. It goes into everything else. Ian O'Connor wrote a great book about their rivalry. And, and I'm not downplaying their rivalry because it's, it's great, but on the golf course, it's not that great. It's, it's, yeah, it's exactly. pretty one-sided yeah. Phil and Tom, uh, Tiger, that's not a great rivalry. I mean, they've never had a nothing. sort of There's a, nothing a there. mono, mono, right? I mean, ever, yeah. you know? I mean, Trevino and Nicholas had, had a couple of great ones, but I don't think any two players have, have gone at it side by side 
nearly as often, you know, as, as, as Tom and, and Jack did. And, and, you know, of course there's the duel in the sun, but the great thing is right before the duel in the sun, they went at it at, at the masters. I mean, literally yeah, just, yeah. you know, just weeks earlier, they went at it at the masters to the point where, uh, where Tom hit a shot that, that Jack says is, is the one shot in his entire career that rattled him. And, uh, you know, which I think is amazing. And then, of course, everybody remembers the chip in at, uh, at Pebble Beach. I mean, that's three major championships where those two guys, I mean, it was true. Like, it's, that's, it's, that's Ali Frazier is what that is, you know. So, so I do think it is the greatest rivalry in golf history on the golf course. And the fact those two guys are such great friends and, and, and developed, you know, this, this deeper, this deeper sort of uh, not just friendship, but relationship that goes beyond golf into family and everything else is so cool. So I love doing that book. That book was so much fun for me. There's something a little bit darkly funny, and it may not be to you, but that uh, at the same time that this happened, Watson's reputation in some ways took a tiny hit after, sure. after Glen Eagles. Uh, and it, it's funny because I also I didn't reread this one, but I think I remember you writing about him, uh, maybe a defense of him. Um, which would be for me like 10 times more offensive than anything related to Paterno <laughs> because, <laughs> because that Ryder cup was so near and dear to me. And I, I'm such a Paul McGinley fan, but no, it, it is funny. And you know, it's, it almost made me feel a little guilty in how I covered Tom Watson uh, this summer um, looking at all his old duels and how important he was to the game of golf, because it was all before I was born or when I was very little. And now I'm like, man, you know, I don't think he was a good captain in 2014, but maybe there should have been a little bit more respect there or something. Well, that, that's what I felt. And and the, the piece I wrote uh, that was a defense of him was not so much a defense of his captaining. Right, uh, right, right, right. The, the point that I wanted to make and, and still want to make is when you hire Tom Watson, that's who you get. I mean, like, like if you don't want that person, you don't want that ultra competitive, no nonsense, uh, you know, kind of tyrant uh, a little bit if you don't want that don't hire him as captain particularly at the end of his career when he didn't really know the players anymore mm -hmm. and all that yep. that's what they wanted you know that that's that was what bothered me was they wanted they felt like the team had gotten soft they felt like the team uh no longer had the fire that they needed to compete whether that was a miscalculation i think it was but that's what they believed and then they hired Tom Watson and Tom Watson brought in exactly what you would expect yep, Tom to bring everything, every story from that thing about Tom saying he didn't want this, this trophy they gave him that he didn't want it. He only wanted the, the Ryder cup. Like that's Tom, that's who he is. Yeah. And, and to me, if you're going to hire him, then you can't like, after it goes bad, like throw him under the bus. Like that, like that's why you brought him in and it didn't work. And, and yeah. it's everybody's fault. And, you know? and it's easy to forget, you know, cause we judge everything in hindsight, but the Europeans were so rattled by this move that they almost took the captaincy away from Paul McGinley. That's right. Yeah. They, I mean, right. they were, they were going, should it be Darren Clark? Should it be Colin Montgomery? They, you know, they were scared. They thought, they thought the Americans had made a good move. So you're right. It's like, <laughs> you know, we can judge in hindsight and say, Oh, what an idiot Ted Bishop was or whatever. But there was a time when everybody thought, Oh, how can McGinley possibly compete with this man, this hero of Scotland, this five-time <laughs> open winner. Um, so that's funny. So Joe, um, as we wrap up here, I, I did want to talk uh, a little bit about the stuff you've been doing first of all, for The Athletic, but um, you wrote a great piece uh, about the Cleveland Indians name, and here's a team that you grew up with, and you went into the history of it, 
And obviously, we've seen that the Washington Redskins are are on the verge of changing their name. Um, do you think this is inevitable that the Indians are going to lose that name soon? Yes. Yes, I think it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable that uh, all of these names uh, are going to get changed at some point. But I think it's particularly inevitable. I, Cleveland's going to change their name soon. I mean, they've, they're already in review. And once you're in review, you know, look, you can take your time. You can you mm-hmm. can go over all the options, whatever you want to do. But you're not going to come back after a review and say, we've decided the name's fine. Like, that's that's not going to happen. It was the same thing with Washington. When they said they were going into review, it's like, okay, well, what you're saying is you're changing the name. And, and so Cleveland will change the name. I don't know to what I, you know, spiders is obviously the name that, that, that seems to have caught uh, a lot of people's attention. There are a lot of people that don't want that. Yeah. You'll go back and forth, whatever they're called sooner or later, people are going to get used to it. And that's what they're going to call the team. So I, I think it's, I think it's the right move. Uh, I think it's overdue. You know, I don't think the name itself um, was ever as offensive as, as certainly as Redskins, uh, and certainly was never as offensive as, as the chief Wahoo mascot that they finally got rid of. Of course. Yeah. But you know what? Once, once you start going down this road, just don't, don't use nicknames that appropriate entire people, you know, just, that's, <laughs> right. this is, it just seems like a pretty basic simple. rule, you know, yep. just, yeah, simple, just don't <laughs> do that. And, and, uh, and I think changing the name is going to be fine. And there's going to be an uproar about it at the beginning. And at the first couple of games, people who, who are angry because they, their childhood has been ruined or something are going to be out there protesting and, and holding up signs and doing whatever else they want to do. And then that'll fade and whatever the new name is will be the new name and we'll all move on with our lives. And, and I just think it's not like it's going to change the world. It's not, but it's going to make things just, just the tiniest bit like better and more fair and, yeah, yeah. and, and less offensive. So uh, I think the name is going, I think eventually the Kansas city chiefs are going to change their name. The Atlanta Braves are going to change their name. I think the Chicago Blackhawks are going to change their name. Uh, it's going to come, uh, you know, I don't know how soon, but I think we're down that road now where it's like, come up with a different idea for your mascot <laughs> and your name, right? Yeah. That's it. Well, and, you know, one thing we see the same argument that, oh, this was meant to be a tribute. And a thing I really love about your writing uh, is that not only are you into history and interested in it, but that you have a really good grip in a way that sports writers don't always have, I think, on the nuances of history. So in the piece, which I'll link for everybody when I post this, you look, you can pull a thing from the Cleveland Plains dealer, you know, 100 years ago saying, oh, this is a tribute to this this player. I may get his name. Is it Louis Sock Alexis? Is that right? Um, anyway, but so you have that little bit, but then you look back in the history and look at how the papers actually treated him after he became less of a star and, you know, you know, devolved into alcoholism and all that stuff. And clearly the coverage of it then and afterwards shows this huge amount of disrespect to the culture and, and at the very best shows stereotypical thinking. Uh, so it's one of those things that, you know, I think you do a good job shooting down that argument that it's meant to honor them. It's meant to be a, yeah, it's meant to be a boon. Well, what, one thing, one thing that you find in history is people writing about history as if it's not a living history, right? You know, right. Whether or not the name was ever intended to, to, to honor or even remember Louis Sacalexis, that's up in the air. I mean, there's, there is this one story that says it was there are 500 stories that says it wasn't, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, but regardless, 
has this has the name has the mascot has any of that things honored Lewis Sakalexis? Do they have like a Lewis Sakalexis uh, like thing at the stadium? Is his number been retired? I mean, he didn't have a number, That's right. but has there been a special number retired in his honor? No, none of those things because it's that's never what it was about. And and I do think it's funny whenever people say, you know, like, oh, well, this was named because this person did well. Okay, has has have anything that's followed back that up yeah. anything anything back that up literally like and, one thing would be good. Yeah, yeah yeah just show me one thing i mean just give me one example of how the name indians has honored native americans you know yeah. and and it, it at least so a final point on that which is one thing you see very often is you'll see polls where people will ask are you offended by the name like the last native americans uh are you offended by the name redskins are you offended by the name mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. indians and these polls often show uh, a majority of, of, of Native Americans who are not offended, yeah. or at least people who self-identify as Native Americans, who, who will say they're not offended. And, and people will then jump on that, hey, they're not offended, what's the problem here? Right, right. It, to me, it's the wrong question. It's, it's, it's an unfair question, because if somebody asked you if you were offended by something, that's one thing. You might not be offended by anything. That's, yeah. That is you individually. Ask how many of them feel like those names honor them and, yes, and see what yes. those percentages are. Yeah. And and I can tell you, they would not be a majority. There are not a majority of Native Americans out there who think Redskins somehow makes their lives better. So so I, I really don't like that, but that's sort of uh, sort of where we we fall down on on uh, on on covering these things, in my opinion. Yeah, it's also a push pull because nobody wants to say they're offended in general. Right. It's, it's not something that's like, yes, I'm a person that's offended. You know, <laughs> there's like maybe like two percent of Twitter that loves to do that, but beyond that, exactly. No. So, okay, exactly. Joe, as a as a last question for you, um, I had a really great time looking at the Tipping Your Cap website. Uh, And, you know, speaking of baseball history, uh, the Negro Leagues is something you've always been really interested in. And and, uh, I think it would be cool uh, just to hear how you got involved in this project, what it is. And uh, my understanding that it's a it's a substitute for a tribute that couldn't happen because of covid this year. That's that's right. Well, that's how it started. And and it looks like there will be hopefully a tribute. We'll see how that goes. So this is the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues. And uh, one thing that the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum Bob Kendrick has always wanted was to have the players of baseball tip their caps to the old Negro leagues stars, the ones that paved the way. And he'd been pushing for this for years. I mean, it's been, it, it, there, it's gone in many, many different directions. Well, this was the year with the hundredth anniversary that baseball agreed to have a special salute to the Negro leagues day across baseball. And during that day, they were going to tip their caps. And of course the, the, the game, uh, was was postponed, canceled because of COVID. Uh, all celebrations were really canceled because of COVID, and uh, it was a real blow uh, to the to not only the museum but to to the opportunity to to honor these great players. So uh, Bob came to me and my friend Dan McGann. We we uh, started a uh, a thing called Passions in America, where we we try to to uh, embrace people's passions for things and uh, and said, you know, that he wanted to figure out a way, what could we do? And we, we came up with this idea of creating a virtual uh, campaign for people to tip their caps to the Negro Leagues. And uh, because Dan is, is someone who, who never wants to do anything small, we decided right away to go after um, 
Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, we thought, let's start there. Start with President Obama and President Bush. And then it was President Obama and President Bush and President Clinton. Then it was President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton and President Carter. And we ended up getting all four of the uh, former living presidents, um, well, living former presidents, put the the words in the right order. Right, right. Um, we got all four of them to tip their caps, uh, send videos uh, and statements uh, about uh, how important it was. Beautiful stuff. And then we started asking all sorts of people, and, and we just got just remarkable response from people as, you know, from Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and, and Paul Rudd and, and uh, you know, the, the Chris Conley, who is, who is the captain of the International Space Station, mm. tipped his cap from space. And, I mean, it's on and on and on. If you go to tippingyourcap.com, that's uh, tippingyourcap. We couldn't get tipyourcap.com for some reason. Um, <laughs> you'll see. We've got, I mean, hundreds of these extraordinary tributes from people all over the country and all over the world. And uh, it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. And and uh, the museum has never gotten this kind of attention. But honestly, I don't think that these Negro Leagues players have ever gotten this kind of attention, uh, you know, in sort of a national campaign. And now we have, we have recently heard with baseball season starting up again this week, hopefully um, on August, I think August 16th, either 16th or the 18th, I think it's the 16th, August 16th, uh, they will have a tip your cap day uh, at at ballparks uh, where where all the players will step out of the out of the dugout and tip their caps to the Negro Leagues and and uh, wear patches and and do other things like that. So yeah. um, so it's really been special. It's really been special. It's obviously something very new for me to be sort of running a campaign uh, rather than uh, than doing doing the writing that I do and right, and the right. website that you go to I, I do it it's my website I designed it and I oh wow I it's, yeah it's a great it. it's so, a terrific website um, yeah which is which is really cool um but yeah I mean it was it's a it's a very very small thing it's really the three of us along with with a, a number of, of volunteers who, who have helped us and uh, it's been really special and and uh, one of the coolest things I've ever been involved in. All right. Well, you know, there's always one more question after the last question, but it's a quick one here. <laughs> uh, we didn't get to talk about your excellent podcast with Michael Shore, but I have to know, back in the day, did you ever get the Fire Joe Morgan treatment? No. And not only did I not, that is how we became friends. No, I did not want to. I was scared to death. This is absolutely true. I read one of the Fire Joe. Of course, I was a huge fan of Fire Joe Morgan. Uh, in fact, uh, I will I will tell you this on this podcast. Uh, we have an anniversary show coming up where we are going to reunite the Fire Joe Morgan oh, guys. Oh, nice, yeah, nice, yeah, yeah. So that's that's coming up soon. Um, but uh, but I was a big fan. But I read one particularly vicious one uh, from, from a writer that I knew and and, then, then vicious by vicious, I mean, hilarious. I mean, they were, they were were never vicious beyond being very, very funny. And I did not know Mike. I didn't, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I even knew that Ken tremendous was Mike Mm because at the time they might've been hiding behind their, their name, their fake names. And I wrote to, uh, Mike and I said, Hey, I am a huge fan of your site, huge fan of you guys please don't ever do this to me, please. I, I can't, I, I think so little of myself now, if you guys ever did this to me, I might never come out of the house again. Please don't ever do this to me. And he wrote back and said, no, you know, no, we wouldn't do that to you. We're, we're, I'm a fan. We're a fan. 
And next time you're in LA, we ought to get together. And that's literally how we became friends. We, we became friends, uh, through, through me begging him not to insult me on, <laughs> in Oregon. And, and now that friendship is, God, we've been friends for more than a dozen years. And we've been doing this podcast together for, for almost a decade. And, uh, it's, uh, he's the greatest guy, but, but you, you don't want him. <laughs> Even if you're on Twitter, you don't want him on the other side. You it's, it's, he's, he's, he's the funniest guy I know. And, and you don't want the funniest guy, you know, taking uh, you down at any point. <laughs> well, that's a perfect place to finish Joe. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Segment break. All right. That was Joe Poznanski. Thanks again, Joe. Thank you to everybody for listening. This was episode number 22 of Apocalypse Sports Radio. Uh, like I said before, if you're interested in uh, getting more content like this, we have long-form interviews. We have sort of narrative stories about cool little moments in sports. Check out the podcast. Uh, it's on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Uh, leave a review if you like it. Tell your friends if you like it. And find written content three times a week at ApocalypseSports.net, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And look, if you really like it and you feel like giving three bucks a month to support, patreon.com slash apocalypse sports is where you can do that. And that is all I have to say. Thank you again so much for listening. Goodbye.